One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to my Second Chance podcast. My name's Raphael Rowe, and on this episode I'm travelling across the pond, virtually, to speak to a former correctional officer turned whistleblower. It's a fascinating insight that becomes all too emotional for my guest, DJ Vodica. Welcome to my podcast, DJ. Can I start the conversation where the conversation has to start, which is when and why did you decide to become a correctional officer? And I use that term correctional officer because that's the American term as opposed to prison officer here in the UK. I, uh, Raphael, thanks for letting me come on to your show. I uh, started the uh, the Department of Corrections in March of 1988 after I left the United States Army. I served four years in the military. And I always wanted to get in some type of law enforcement. And when I came back home to California, my father told me, hey, the Department of Corrections is uh, hiring for correctional officers or actually prison guards. And it's a booming. It was booming because of the three strikes law coming in like that. And I said, sure, Pops, I'll take the interview. So I did the interview, went through the process, ended my first assignment at uh, Corker State Prison, which is the a level four security shoe housing unit, which, which housed all the uh, level four inmates, all the gang, um, heavy gang members, all the people like Charles Manson, Sirhan Saran, and, and other high minority criminals. And that was my first duty assignment uh, at Corker State Prison as a correctional officer. What Was your father a correctional officer or a prison guard? No, my father was a retired military. He served 20 years in the United States Air Force, and he was uh, worked on you know, in various jobs uh, in California. What was your perception of prisons before you actually went in and become one of the, the guards? A totally different world. I mean, it's just, you know, I come from a, a, a good, happy family, and, and uh, it's just a total different world You walk when you walk through those gates and you and you go into that environment and you see, you know, all different types of uh, races and, and inmates and, and how they how they operate and all that. It's just uh, it's breathtaking. I, I suppose for the, the person that's never been into a prison, but watches these kind of avalanche of documentaries about prisons, whether it's my own inside the world's toughest prisons, whether it's, you know, prison documentaries about Americans. Is it really like they 
you know, depict it to be in, in the movies and in the documentaries, you know, the Hispanic gangs, the black gangs, the Caucasian gangs, et cetera. Was that your experience when you first went in? Yeah, I mean, it was. It was segregated yards and the Hispanics, uh, Southern Hispanics had their own tables, sat where they had, they grouped in little groups all through the yards. And it's, you know, what, what I see on those different uh, TV shows and all that is it's probably 90, 90, 95% because, when these other people that come in and media and all that, they don't see the, the, the rogue prison guards. They don't get to see how officers treat the incarcerated. They don't get to see that kind of stuff as well as I did. And we're going to get to that because it's, it's all very well documented in your book. But before we get there, what was it like the first time you went inside? So you were seeing things, obviously, but you have emotions and feelings. What was it like for you going into an environment, even though you'd been trained, no doubt, before you went in? It was the reality of going in and being, I suppose, in the eyes of everybody but your colleagues, uh, a common enemy. Walking to an estate prison, it, being a new officer, which they called us fish, you know, we're brand new. That's what the inmates called us as fish. And and everybody stares at you. They they look at you. They try to weed you out, see if they can get to you. And you just have to stay strong. And that's that's what kept me going, is staying strong and respecting the inmates. You know, I respected them. They respected me. Treated them with, with respect, and you got that respect back. But it's, it's a scary feeling if you've never done it before. And what are those prisons like that you were working in? I mean, were they minimum security-type prisons, or were they maximum-type prisons? And what does that actually mean? I worked in all maximum state prisons. Most of the guys that were in where I worked at, 85% were in for murder. They were doing life. So if they wanted to take out a correctional officer anytime, they can do that at any time because uh, we walked amongst freely around them. There's different levels in the Department of Corrections in California, level one, level two, level three, level four. It's all based on a point system and how horrific their crime is. Um, level ones are usually, they go home within a year to two years uh, they're outside the fence. They work around the prison grounds and clean and, and cut grass and make the prison look nice and beautiful. But level twos, threes, and fours, they go behind the fence. And uh, the, like I said, level fours are, are the worst. And then you have uh, the shoe, the security housing, where the inmates are locked up 24-7 when I work at the, the famous Pelican Bay State Prison. But uh, we do have uh, San Quentin at the death row. And right now they've been California – the, the governor uh, uplifted the San Quentin's death row and moved those inmates into general population. What was what was your day to day sort of existence inside the prison in terms of your responsibilities and how how much were you you know it's one thing observing prisoners from a distance but how how over the years in the early years of your time working as a guard you, you know your interaction with prisoners what what was that like. When I first got there, I was an officer. I was a yard officer because of my size. You know, I'm, a, I'm about six foot five, 320. So they always want to get the big prison guards onto the yards and just for any type of violence or rioting. But I spent you know, a good six, seven months on, on there. And then we, we activated the, the level four Sioux kitchen, which fed all the inmates in the shoe, the lockup. They put me in the kitchen over there where I supervised uh, about 25 inmate crew on a daily basis in the morning. And and uh, then I worked different positions, towers. They they tried to work us on all different watches too. So you've got a lot of experience. And what about the, you talked about, you know, working with some of, you know, the various levels of prisoners, one, two, three, and four. Any particular prisoners that sort of uh, stand out in terms of their notoriety or because of who 
and what they'd become while they were in prison in terms of their reputations. Tell me about some of those characters. Yeah, when I was at Corcoran, you know, uh, Raphael, I, I got a chance to meet the famous Charles Manson. You know, I got to go over and see what he was all about. And, uh, my, my ex-partner was a correctional officer. He was that housing unit officer. And I never got to see him, and I got a chance to go see him. You know, he tries to intimidate you and, at the time. And then I also got to meet the uh, Mexican mafia uh, kingpin, uh, Joe Morgan, who was in charge of all the Mexican mafia throughout the United States and, and every prison. So I got to get to meet a lot of the heavy uh, validated gang members who oversaw the prisons and their different races. But does it normalize them? I mean, because prisoners on the outside are a completely different entity to what they they often can be reduced to when, when they go in prison. Like I, I read in your book about, you know, the Bloods and the Crips, these kind of notorious American gangs that were at loggerheads. But, I mean, do they live side by side in order to get through their time? No, the, the, they don't. The Crips and the Bloods, they, they keep, everybody keep, when they, were, they separate from each other. They might communicate high and by, but they don't actually group up as together. It's like the Mexican Mafia, the Northerners, the Whites, the Crips and the Bloods. They keep themselves separated. But they do, you know, talk to each other. But when it comes down to politics, when it comes down to, you know, they're going to go at each other and all hell breaks loose. Are they normalized? Are these people still a threat and a danger? And are they as scary in prison as they're portrayed in the media during their trials and convictions? Yeah, yeah, they are. These guys, some of these guys are, like I said, heavy gang members and they, they control the streets. They did hor- horrific crimes on the streets. And you know, you're, you're, we're walking amongst these guys, you know, we're, we're, like, we're side by side. And yeah, they, they could be a threat towards us, especially if, uh, they wanted to take one of us out at any time. And as far as the ones that are that are indeterminate shoot terms, the heavy gang members, they're locked up 24-7 in the cells where I worked at. They, when they come out of their cells, they're escorted with full restraints, leg irons and, and handcuffs and two officers per an inmate. We don't ever let those guys alone with an officer inside the building. They're always locked, uh, escorted with full restraints. And, and are they a threat just to the officers or to other prisoners? They're both threat to other prisoners and, and inmates um, and staff. I mean, these guys, uh, if they want, they'll, they'll take anybody out, inmate, staff member. They're a big threat. That's why we house them in the, in the security housing unit, locked up 24-7. If, if you took a step back, took your uniform off, put on some civvy clothes, and then took a step forward, and you looked at those men that were being confined to those cells 24-7, what, how would you describe it? How, how, just as an outsider looking in on, on the existence of being banged up 24 hours a day, seven days a week for months, if not years. I mean, how would you describe that to someone? Well, when I was at Pelican Bay, I'll bring up Pelican Bay. Pelican Bay is the highest security probably in the United States. It's a, a dungeon of a dungeon, no windows, nothing. You know, you walk in there, these guys have been locked up, twenty, like I said, 24-7 for 20, 25 years. I mean, they can't go out and program on the general population with other inmates. They end up either killing somebody or, or, or hurting themselves. But it's it's an eight foot by 11 foot cell, you know, one inmate per cell. We cell feed them every day. We, we give them two hot meals a day. They, they don't come out of their cell. They don't have telephone privileges. They don't have visiting contact, visiting privileges. They walk on a concrete yard. They go out there for an hour. They do their walk. They go back in their cell. We shower them once every three days. I mean, these, these guys are uh, the worst of the worst in the system in California. And, uh, 
that's that's how they live and that's how they adopt. Some of them adapt that way. Some of them don't. I, I, I ask not out of pity for the prisoner in any way or, or to be glorifying these types of individuals, but out of interest in terms of the psychological um, ramifications for for treating a human being in that way, what what did you find were the sort of obvious signs of these kind of guys, or didn't you? Yeah, well, I did. You know, walking up in the cells, some of these inmates, and I, I don't want to get too involved in what they did, they, some of them uh, wiped human feces. They wouldn't use the toilet. Some of these guys that are locked up, they'd use their human feces in, in order to wipe themselves. They, They'd wipe themselves on the back wall or they'd smear feces all over their bodies or, or you know, they, they wouldn't want to shower for two, three, four months. And they let their grooming standards just relax and their fingernails were growing long and completely on. These guys, uh, they didn't care what, you know, how they looked and what they are. They, I'm going to tell you, they were basically like animals in a cage. And then when we had to go in and get them, we had to, we had to set up a cell extraction team in order to go get them because they refused to come out of their cells. And was that out of protest or was that more out of lack of choice? Lack of choice. It wasn't out of protest because some of these guys, like we had to go in and, and, and Pelican Bay, we had to clean their cells because the smell and all that other inmates in the pod were smelling that and they couldn't handle it. So they were complaining and we had to go actually go in and, and, and remove them and, and clean their cells with uh, our suits on and clean it once a week. So once a week we had to go in. And, and remove the inmate, physically remove the inmate and go in and clean their cell. What was the worst act of violence that you witnessed on the yard or in the cell blocks? Well, when I was an investigator, I, I, in my book, I was an investigator, ISU officer. I was an evidence officer at two different prisons. But the, first, the worst thing I've ever seen was an inmate, he committed suicide. He jumped off the top bunk and they would have the little toilets in the, you know, there's two inmates, there's like aluminum toilet to the wall attached to the wall with a sink. He ended up jumping from the top bunk head first into the toilet, broke his neck, split his skull, brain matter all over the wall, brain matter all over the, the floor. And I was one of the first ones to go in there and, and do the crime scene until the outside investigations team came in. That was one of the most horrific crimes I've seen inside the prison. But And he inflicted that on himself by yes, diving head first into, head first the-, into the toilet. Yes, is African inmate. During the during the holiday time, when they get really depressed, and uh, he jumped from that, he left a suicide note and, and everything like that. At first, you know, and it, it was gruesome, you know. I, but I've seen that before. I actually seen crime scenes, but to other officers, uh, they couldn't handle the smell, the stink. They couldn't handle the that stuff. But it really didn't bother me. But it bothered me when I uh, had to tell my other peers they weren't they weren't happy about it. You mentioned that you had a particular role of investigating these sorts of incidents inside of prison. Tell me more about what the expectation was of of that sort of guard in a state prison. Well, I was handpicked. I mean, we were we call the investigative services. You know, I issue otherwise known as a goon squad. We're handpicked by the warden. He gets to pick his crew, and officers try to interview for that position. And three prisons I worked, I issue three of the hard hardcore prisons, and. We had, we had freedom for all through the institution, and all of us had certain jobs. I was an evidence officer, was highly trained in, in collecting evidence, and went to a schools to, uh, to, to do that job. And I, I seen a lot of horrific crimes. I seen gassings of officers, where officers were gassed by inmates, where feces and urine were thrown on, and had to collect a crime scene. I seen numerous stabbings. I've seen, you name it, Raphael, I've seen it. And, and the other officers don't get a chance to get into that unit and, and see what I saw. 
And you had to gather this evidence for what purpose? For prosecution, possible prosecution to the district attorney's office. Your other inmates to either get more time or in-house uh, criminal uh, you know, investigation. And was this just inmate on inmate or was it inmate on guard guard on inmate, anybody and everybody who committed a crime within the walls of the prison? Inmate on inmate, inmate on guard, you know, suicidal. I, I dealt with rape cases, I did sex cases. You know, I, I did it all. I collected all the evidence. I mean, six years at three different prisons, I was six years straight as an evidence officer. And I was very highly decorated and trained. Was it a, a popular job among the prisoners? Did they want you to discover the facts? Did the guards want you to discover the facts? Or, or was you kind of, um, and I do want to, I, you know, we will get into the green wall. You know, I'm, I'm coming to that. And I'm sure my listeners are now wondering what the green wall is, but we will come to that. But I just wonder whether, you know, it was difficult doing the job that you do because it couldn't have been a popular job, you know, gathering evidence which could lead to somebody getting either a longer sentence or a new sentence. That's correct, Raphael. I, when, I, when I actually did a crime scene, it could either take from an hour or an all day or 16 hours. It depends on the crime. And I did my job well. I mean, I, I was one of the best evidence officers in the state of California and recognized by a lot of district attorneys and investigators and my team. But a lot of the prison guards, they, they, they came over and they, they wanted to watch what I did, but they couldn't step into the crime scene. You know, They wanted to see what, how as, an, as far as the inmates, uh, they know I did my job well and, and a lot of times when I collected the evidence and passed it on to my fellow employees, we had a 99.9% conviction rate. It's interesting, actually, because I didn't know that that kind of officer role existed in, in prisons. I don't know if we have a, a similar thing here in the UK. I'm sure we do, but I don't think it's it's a trained correctional or prison officer that does that job. They often invite in the police, especially where the act is, you know, somebody's lost their life or it's a rape or it's something serious, but it's really down to you guys. Can that be trusted? Can it be trusted inside a prison? You're a correctionals officer. The thing that's happened is inside prison. The last thing the prison would want is for any kind of negative publicity, et cetera, getting out. Yeah, they, that's why the Department of Corrections of California have their uh, ISU officers are trained in different areas. And and we, we go within. Like if we have a homicide inside of a prison, Raphael, we, we secure the crime scene. We do everything. And then the outside agency, whatever county you're in, they have their private investigators for the district attorney's office. He would come in with his the pathologist and everything like that and his team. And we, he, they'd work side by side with us on, on a homicide or, or something like that. But the less criminal uh, types of, of investigations, we handle it with him inside the institution. And then we were highly trained and we did our reports and reported to the uh, administration they follow up with documentation to the district attorney's office outside and they seek criminal prosecution were you ever um and i don't remember reading anything like this in your books so i haven't read and got to the end i'm looking forward to that but um were you ever accused during any of the investigations that you conducted of doing something that you shouldn't have done i don't know hiding evidence planting evidence or or were these allegations typical because people were trying to cover up what they did no, I never have. I was always an honest officer. Like, like I said, I took an oath and protect and serve, and, and I did my job well, but never did any of that. And were never accused of anything like that? No, never at all. That, that's a very simple answer. Your, your book, The Green Wall, it documents the work 
that you've just talked about that you did inside prison and, and your journey through the prison and the, the people that you met, some of these notorious serial killers um, and individuals who were violent or gang members. But its focus is on Salinas Valley State Prison in California, which was, I think, opened in, in the mid 90s. And in particular, you talk about the Green Wall, um, which is the title of your book. What is the Green Wall? Well, when I transferred down from Pelican Bay State Prison in uh, 1996, I opened up Salinas Valley State Prison. And the warden knew me right away from other prisons. He said, Officer Monica, can you, can you work? Can you set my ISU unit of evidence? Can you do everything? So I said, yes, sir, I'll set it up. So I sat there for about two years in that investigation squad. And then I wanted to get out. I've been doing too much investigation stuff. I want to go back to the main line with the other officers. And so I went to a yard called the D yard, which was the worst yard in the Valley State Prison. We had four different yards at that prison that housed a thousand inmates on each yard, A, B, C, and D. So I took D yard. Uh, I wanted to, there was more action going over there during everyday basis. But we had a riot on November 1998. Uh, we had a riot uh, where Southern Hispanic inmates attacked staff on the yard, the upper yard, after they were out of the yard. And when they were on the yard, they, they were the only ones on the yard. The other races didn't want to come on the yard. They, they knew something was going on. So they attacked staff. And uh, when I got uh, had to respond to that area, the lieutenant who I worked with, uh, Lieutenant Lewis at uh, Pelican Bay, he was a lieutenant of that day. And he said, Bonico, go grab the crime scene kit, do my crime scene because the ISU unit's not here because it's a holiday. He said, no problem. Well, I ended up doing that. I photographed uh, the inmates where they were in a prone position, set up the crime scene tape and all that. And shortly after that, I told Lewis, I, I need to have, I want to photograph these inmates prior to going back in their cells, you know, make sure they're not, have injuries on them, sustain injuries after the fact. He goes, yeah, do your job, DJ. So I took them into a hobby room and, and had the officers escort them one by one into the high room, hobby room. And several of the officers stepped in and said, what are you doing, Bonica? What, what are you doing? Are you an inmate lover? Are you protecting these guys? And, you know, they just got really negative towards me. I said, I'll do my job. You guys do your job. And I'm glad I did it that way because... Later that later they uh, escorted them back to their housing units and they tuned them up. They actually physically beat them up, put them in closets, and tuned them up for what they did to these officers. And, and uh, a big investigation entailed after that. Take me back to the attack on the officers. So these this particular race attacked the prison guards who were on the yard supervising them that day. For what reason? Respect the the officers. A lot of the officers on D yard were disrespecting the Southern Hispanic inmates and they, they had enough, you know, they were, they were doing, you know, later on it proved that they were doing criminal activity. They were abusing them with excessive use of force. They were always messing with them and all that. So the Southern Hispanics had, had enough, but they had to have prior approval by their higher ups before they can actually attack a staff. And what that's what they call putting a green light on a staff member. It has to be approved by the, uh, the Mexican mafia gang uh, who controls the Mexican mafia all the way down they can't just go and attack staff without approval by their higher ups. And those higher ups, are they inside the prison or outside the prison? They're inside the prison at other institutions. The word travels over, over time. The Southern Hispanics, you know, they would get disrespected all the time on that yard within weeks and months. And, and the word got out and it, it got up to the higher ups. And they said, you know what, we're tired of this. So, you know what, there's a green light on, on, on that yard. So if you have the opportunity to, to attack, take out an officer, take out an officer. And these guys had weapons on them because when I rolled them over on where they were, they had weapons underneath their bodies and their stomachs. So 
Yeah, these guys were heavily armed, ready to attack Stapman. Well, walk me through what happened, because if these guys were armed and prepared to attack the guards and they did attack the guards, what broke up that attack? The weapons, uh, the gunners on the yard, they dispersed uh, uh, pepper spray. We had a lot of other officers respond to the yard and put the yard down in a prone position because the next next thing was going to be lethal force. Because in our towers in California, we use the Mini-14 with a full matted jacket, 223 round. And they fire for effect. We don't fire, you know, to, to, to injure something. You fire for center mass. So if the officers in the gun tower saw a weapon with a, an inmate's hand coming towards the staff member, that officer in the tower has a duty to take that inmate out. So there were a lot of gas and blocks on the yard, and the inmates, you know, laid on the ground in prone position. There were several staff members who were injured and had to go out to the outside hospitals. You know, there were actually some of their batons were taken from them, and they were beaten with their own batons. And so eventually, and it's sad to hear that some of the officers were, were injured. So the prisoners, they were placated. And then uh, I'm trying to picture this in my head. So the prisoners have been, or, or, or the yard has been taken back by the numbers in terms of guards and the threat of lethal fire. And then you come in and you start to investigate what led to that attack and what injuries the staff and inmates sustained during that attack. My main, my main goal, Raphael, was doing the crime scene. The, the, the attack happened at 10 in the morning, and I secured the crime scene at 10 in the morning. And then I had to come back around 8 or 9 that night. I had to go to the outside hospital to take photographs of the staff. And then I had to come back and, and, and follow up with my investigation, collect evidence and all that. So after I did all that, then my upper peers, um, the, the lieutenants and the sergeants from the ISU unit, when they came to work on following Monday, that was their job to put that together. And by taking photographs of the prisoners that were not injured or, or only sustained small injuries, you were ensuring that you had documented the injuries they sustained during that yard incident. But it was also to ensure that your fellow correctional officers hadn't injured them after the incident. That's correct. That's, that, that's how, how I was trained throughout my career as an editor. So you always take photographs of the inmate prior to being escorted to their cells to make sure they don't sustain that type of injury on the yard. Because when they escort them back to the yard, housing unit, if they sustain more injuries, that's after the fact. And these officers who were part of the green wall were doing criminal activity towards inmates. Pick up the story from there. So you took the photographs. Your fellow correctional officers were starting to taunt you about whether you were a prisoner lover, et cetera. What happened next? After after that happened, I, I did my, my whole crime scene and it was – getting told by these officers, you're, you're inmate lover, who you working for, you're no good and all that. So after that, uh, I was labeled basically a rat. You know, I was basically you know, an inmate lover and they didn't trust me. And the officers, part of the Green Wall, or other staff members and supervisors didn't really trust me. And then I went, you know, I, I said, I got tired of that yard and I, I, I went to another job and which I ended up in the vehicle selling court. And, and a lot of these officers that would walk around, Raphael, they would throw gang signs up and symbols which this looks like a W. You know, that's, that's how they call themselves the wall. It looks like a W. These guys would walk around and throw the W up. But when they saw me, they didn't throw the W up because they knew that I was no good and that I, I didn't believe in that and I would report them. You've, you've mentioned the word and your book is called The Green Wall. But what is The Green Wall? The Green Wall is uh, we all wore green jumpsuits in the Department of Corrections. Our, our, our uniforms were either a green jumpsuit or green pants and a khaki shirt. The majority of the officers wear jumpsuits. So that's why they call themselves the Green Wall. And the Green Wall signified 
what if you were part of the green wall what was your your mission or your remit other than being a correctional officer you're a part of a gang i mean you know it's like a gang on the outside of the streets these guys were like a gang they were they were a tight little unit you know they you know some of these guys uh, some people couldn't go be a part of this gang if they didn't trust you they didn't know you they wouldn't let you come into this type of gang because they knew what they were going to do to certain convicts or inmates on a daily basis or they plot and see who we're going to who we're going to go after and who we're going to set up who we're going to plant weapons in their cells and, and do criminal activity they had to get to know you i mean if you weren't liked by other officers they didn't want nothing to do with you you weren't going to be a part of them and how many officers were involved in the Green Wall in this prison? Uh, I'd say it started out with probably five to ten. It grew to about 150 to 200. As much as that? That's a huge amount. Yeah, we had like 700 officers there. And over the years, I mean, they all were pretty tight. And it, it started small. And they had these guys had parties on the streets, Raphael. They called themselves the 723. The 7th alphabet of the, was G. The 23rd is W. They would call themselves the 723 or the GW. Some of these Greenwall members that actually started the Greenwall had tattoos on their bodies. At GW, had 723. You know, they 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 signed in with green ink pens. They were like the Thanksgiving riot. They wore a turkey pin on their green John jumpsuits, indicating they were part of that the Greenwall and and represented themselves on that riot. Um, these guys were, uh, and they had the backing of the warden. They had the backing of the warden, which is in my book. I, I don't. I mean, if you haven't got too far in the book, it's uh, all the evidence supports what I about the Green Wall. And when you say they had the backing of the warden, that gave them a license to plant evidence on prisoners so that they could punish these prisoners. I mean, what was the purpose of doing what they were doing? The warden at the time, uh, when I got the Salinas, we in two years we went through four wardens. Wardens came there and they said the inmates were always abusing staff, taking. They weren't listening to the staff. They, they did whatever they wanted to do. And a lot of officers were getting hurt. A lot of officers were uh, you know, not coming to work because they were afraid they didn't want to come to work. So this new warden came in from Soledad. Uh, it was, you know, he came in from Soledad and, and he brought his own team in. And some of these guys were already at the Salinas were part of the Green Wall. He knew them. So he told these officers who were part of the Green Wall, he told you go put fear and intimidation to these inmates on this yard, these yards. They're not going to control my prison. No inmate's going to control my prison. We're going to overtake our prison. So do what you got to do. You have my backing. It's not going to go any farther than this. And other than that attack that took place on the yard that day, which then had you ostracized, if you like, from the Green Wall, had you witnessed any other serious incidents involving members of the Green Wall? Yes, there's. I, I actually have documentation to support some of the stuff in my book, and I've read documentation. People, there. There, these guys on the green wall would actually go up to a cell and handcuff the inmate to a rail, and this inmate's getting ready to go home. He's been down for 15, 20 years. He's actually going to go home in about a week or two, and these guys knew him. He was a sort of a problem child on the yard, you know, always causing problems with their staff members. But so these guys would go up and, and handcuff him to the rail and walk into their cell, and, and then. One of the guys on the green wall would pull an inmate manufactured weapon out of his jumpsuit and put it under his pillow and say, hey, Marquez, look what I got. He goes, that's not mine. That's not mine. You're setting me up. You're setting me up. And uh, who the court's going to believe? The court's going to believe the officer before the inmate. So these some of these inmates were getting a lot more time. Some of them were getting the third strike. Some of them weren't even going home because these guys on the green wall would actually plant weapons in their cells. They'd actually go down to the level one yard. These guys in the level one yard, Raphael, like I was telling you earlier, 
they program. They don't get in trouble. These guys would go down there and just harass them, take them around inside the building and tune them up. When I say tune them up, they would beat them down, break their property and all this, you know. And some of the inmates came through the vehicle sally port where I was working at at the time and said, Bada, can look what these guys did to me. I said, who did that to you guys? The guys on the green wall, the, the goon squad, the ISU, they came down here and they, they destroyed a lot of our bunks, our blockers. They, did, they just came down to mess with us. And right away, I thought, this is wrong. You took a stand on that day that incident took place on the yard. And, and for that, you were sort of ostracized by the green wall guards. You weren't part of them. And no doubt there were other officers that were not a part of what they were doing, although their number was large, 100 to 150, you know, that kind of number is large. How did the other officers that were not part of the Green Wall, how did they survive in that environment if they were not part of such a huge gang? They just, they did their job and they went home. You know, they didn't participate in that kind of stuff and they ended up going home and doing their job. But I I guarantee some of them that that didn't want to participate, they, they made it hard. They the other officers wouldn't walk with them, wouldn't walk with their yard. They didn't, you know, he, they didn't trust me, didn't have backing, you know. But a lot of the officers uh, didn't want to go along and they didn't want to be any part of this criminal activity going on. You took a stand. How far did your stand take you? All the way to the Senate hearings in the state capitol. After all this happened, after I took my pictures about the Greenwall, they did a big investigation months later in Office of Internal Affairs in Sacramento who oversees the prisons and internal affairs, came down and interviewed me for about three hours without union representation. I didn't want union representation because I didn't do nothing wrong. And I was in there for about four hours, and the word got out that I was in there with them for about four hours. So the word really hit hard. You know, I'm a, I'm a rat. I'm no good and all that. And, and then shortly after that, I was uh, down in the vehicle, Sally Port, and Lieutenant Lewis, who was an ISU lieutenant, and he was investigating his own green wall, which in his unit – he was in charge of the officers who were part of the Greenwall. He supervised these guys. He wanted them out of the unit. He completely wanted them out of the unit. He went to the warden who was in charge of the Greenwall and said, hey, I want these guys out of my unit. I don't want them here anymore. And the warden told him, no, Lieutenant Lewis, you're going to keep those guys in there. Those guys work for me. You've got to understand, Lieutenant Lewis, you work for me. You keep those guys where they're at. And Lewis didn't like that. So then the warden uh, called me up a couple days later to his office and he said, Hey, officer Bodica, do you know anything about these guys called the green wall? I go, yes, sir. I do. I know a lot of, I have a lot of knowledge and firsthand information and I've seen a lot. And he goes, well, I need you to write a report. I said, well, sir, I work with these guys. You going to protect me. He goes, Oh, I'll protect you. Don't worry. I'll protect you. I said, what if I don't write the report? He goes, well, I'm ordering you to write this report. Now I have to put my powers in. I'm ordering you to write this report. I said, no problem. I'll write the report. So I typed it up, reported, stamped it confidential, gave it to the warden on Monday. And and then about a month, two months later, in my vehicle, Sally Port, I have these guys at the green wall. I, I recognize them. They're driving down on a golf cart. They get off the cart, come into a, my area and have, wanted a little talk with me. And they quoted verbatim what was out of my confidential memorandum that I gave to the warden. They actually, he threw me under the bus. Now, I didn't know he was behind the green wall, but he threw me under the bus. He set me up. That's when I was a marked man. I was told, you're a dead man walking. You're not going to survive here. You need to leave this prison. You know, watch your back at all times, Attica. And I lost it. Raphael, I lost it. I, mean, I was throwing trash cans against the fence. The tower officer had to call uh, sergeants to come down there to calm me down. What's going on? And I explained to the ISU sergeant, hey, your, your squad members came down and threatened me and all that. What, what, what? I go, yeah. 
So they contacted the office inspector general who works in Sacramento at the time, who works for the governor. And they got a hold of me right away and told me, hey, I went home that day and they said, we want to come interview you. So they came to my house and interviewed me for four hours at my house about everything I knew about the Green Wall. And I did. Two weeks later, they stormed the institution with their vehicles and all that. They came through the Sally Port and with their cars, checked their weapons in the towers, went directly down to where the ISU unit was, removed the officers from the ISU office, took off evidence out of there, uh, removed the warden from the prison that day, took all the evidence from him. I was a marked man. I needed out of there. And shortly after that, I was moved overnight to another prison you know, for my protection. Wasn't that in itself dangerous? Because surely there would be other guards, correctional officers in any prison you went to now that saw you as 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 a problem or a threat to to their authority or the way they did things. Absolutely. You know, it's unheard of in the California Department of Corrections to get moved overnight to another prison. But I had to help with a drill or no so my personal friend who was my squad sergeant at Pelican Bay, who was now working with SSU Rural. A handpicked team in Sacramento, and he went to his people. He went all the way to the secretary of correction to oversees all corrections reports to the governor. He told the secretary, "You guys got to move Vodka. You can't keep him there. He's a dead man." So they made the order. They moved me. So I got to the other prison, and shortly after that, it followed me because when I got there, I had a captain come up and told me, "Oh, you're the one who who just transferred here. You're the victim witness who you're you're the one that's the victim witness protection plan." You're the one that ratted everybody off at Salinas. And I looked at him and said, Captain, I don't, I don't appreciate what you just said to me. And he laughed and he walked away. So shortly after that, I, I worked a yard, uh, one of the yards down there, and, and a, a certain lieutenant was on that yard. And he goes, hey, Vodica, who are you ratting on now? Who are you going to snitch on now? And he said it in front of the same captain. He said, uh, that's, the, that's Vodica. He's on the victim witness protection. You know? And I said, this is crazy. And that same day, there was a, a alarm on the housing unit and, I was a yard officer, and I ran across the yard to the, the housing unit. That's what we had to do. We had to run across the yard to, to see if there was going on in the housing unit. And as, as I ran through the rotunda, the other officers were running behind me. Um, they stopped at the door. They actually stopped. They didn't watch me come in. So the gunner upstairs in the, in the rotunda said, Bonica, stop. Don't go any farther. He was watching out for me because there was an inmate inside the rotunda ready to take me out with a broomstick. And this was set up by your fellow correctional officers? It had to have been. It had to have been. And I, when I walked out, I walked through a bunch of officers said, you guys are no good, you know. And then a lieutenant sergeant was walking across the yard, and I said, you guys set me up. This was a setup. I walked right up to the warden's office, the chief deputy warden's office, the secretary who was in there, and I'm an officer. I'm, I'm walking in. I don't care what happens. And I walked right up to the uh, uh through the secretary's office, Vodica, you can't go in there. You can't go in there. And I said, I'm going in there. And I opened his door and I walked in and said, sir, you set me up. You knew all this. You didn't. He goes, we can't protect you all the time, Officer Vodica. And I said, you know, I'll see you in court. I'll see you in court one day. That was my last day on the job. You know, I, Raphael, this is what's scary. I, I approached my chat when I got moved overnight to Pleasant Valley. I sent documentation to my own union, which is the biggest powerful union in the United States or in the world who oversee the officers. We pay union dues. I went up to the chapter president who was at Pleasant Valley one day. I walked up to him and said, hey, Mike, I've been trying to get a hold of you. He looked at me and he looked at my, my green jumpsuit and he saw my name plate. He goes, oh, you're Officer Vodica. We've been advised not to talk to you. He turned around and walked away from me. My own union turned their back on me because I, what I was doing. That's unheard of. 
And, and that, that, was, that was brought up in the Senate hearings by the senators. And he actually admitted it in the Senate hearings that he was advised by his counsel to walk away and not talk to me. When you walked out on the job, it's debatable about whether you were forced out because it sounds to me that your life was in danger and would be from the moment you took those photographs and took a stand. When you walked out on the job, what impact did it have on your your home life, you know, your your life beyond the prison wall? Because that in itself sounds challenging. But what impact did it have on, you know, you you you, you putting down those keys for the last time and going back to, to your home life? It was scary because uh, at the time I was dating a woman and we actually got married. And, and during the time she, she saw a little bit of this and she got scared. She didn't want no part of it. And, and I had to move out of my where I used to live to a, a different area. And she didn't want no part of it. So uh, we ended up divorcing. And, and then shortly after that, I uh, was living in an area and on workman's comp and out on medical leave and until further action. And, and then uh, I had to retain my own attorney, my own attorney. I had to find an attorney that represented me on, on my lawsuit. And uh, shortly after that, I was uh, invited to, they called the government oversight hearing at the state capitol in California. They, they wanted to know what, all about the code of silence inside the prisons, how the senators were very upset how this was happening. And they subpoenaed me up there for a, a hearing. And, and I ended up going there with my lawyer, Joe Renoso, who was heavily armed. I had California Highway Patrol next to me that were heavily armed. I walked into this, uh, the state capitol and up the stairs and media was everywhere. Cameras are all on me and walked through the, into the Burton room, which is a packed auditorium, no seats available, standing room only. I mean, the whole, there's probably a thousand people in there. And then, then the senators were sitting high and I had to go down there and with my lawyer and sat at a table and at the table was the director of corrections, all the higher administration. And so senators wanted to know why these guys didn't protect me. You know, they wanted answers. And so when I sat down in the chair, one of the senators who's now a congresswoman in Washington, D.C., Jackie Spear, held up the newspaper, LA Times, which you're going to hear today is unbelievable what they did to this officer. Uh, we're going to get to the bottom. It hit the front page of the LA Times. I mean, it went everywhere. And I testified for two hours about the Green Wall, and, and uh, these guys in upper administration couldn't give the senators a truthful answer. They couldn't do, they didn't know how to, how to handle me, how, what, to, to help protect me. Shortly after that, Raphael, I was uh, taken out of the courtroom and I was moved into hiding off the grid for six months. I had to go into an isolation between two lock gates up in the high country until uh, we started our litigation because, uh, like I said, I was a dead man walking. The convicts and inmates, they didn't, they weren't going to hurt me. It was the staff members that were concerned because they're going to get investigated by the FBI and criminal investigation and probably end up in prison. It sounds like, well, it's, it's clear, you, you know, not only was your personal life affected and destroyed so was your your sort of existence having to go into hiding so you were what they classically call the the whistleblower but surely what 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 I'm trying to get my head around is that you know all these um, officials if you like that you had to give evidence in front of and all of the, the the sort of senior execs that were involved in in listening to your story surely they couldn't have 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 ignored the fact that this is something that probably happens inside these dangerous, violent places called prisons. I mean, maybe it was or was it the first time that a guard of your status had actually 
whistleblown? Well, there was a there was a prison guard way back in the when I worked at Corcoran State Prison. They, the officers were uh, I don't know if you heard about Raphael, but they were uh, they were uh, gladiator fights. They would put inmates on the yards, different races, and officers would bet on them and see which one's going to come off the yard dead or alive. And that's actually happened at Corcoran State Prison, where they actually made a movie out of it called Felon with Val Kilmer in it. And that officer and another sergeant were whistleblowers just at that prison, what happened there. But after that, no, I was probably one of the biggest and largest whistleblowers to ever blow the whistle on the Department of Corrections about the Green Wall, because the Green Wall was just active at Salinas, but now it's grown out, grown throughout the whole system in the Department of Corrections in California, and it's still currently active right now. After I testified in the Senate hearings and all that, I changed policies and procedures within the Department of Corrections. I changed laws for whistleblowers to come forward, uh, to, to not fear retaliation or retribution. I mean, I, I set a presidence in, in the Department of Corrections, and uh, but you know, it went underground for a little while, but now it's resurfaced again. Now we got the the younger millennials, you know, finding out about this green wall, and now they're actually uh, doing criminal activity. Uh, um, and why do you think that is? Why do you think they're allowed to get away with it, given you put yourself under so much stress, strain, and, and were, you know, in the public eye because of what you've done? In fact, you've become the target of death threats, etc. How do you think it's been allowed to, to resurface? Poor administration. It depends on the institution, whoever runs that institution, whatever warden runs that institution. If, if he says, you know what, I, just like the old warden where I was at Salinas, you know, you guys do what you got to do. Uh, I'll back you and I'll protect you. Not all wardens are bad. There's that select a few that are, you know, and they keep it from their their supervisors and their peers in Sacramento. Like my, at Salinas, what happened to me? That warden at the prison never shared it with his bosses. So the upper executives who I testified in the Senate hearings, didn't know anything about the Green Wall, nothing about the Green Wall. Now they did, and they took action against that warden. How do you think the the public reacted? Because I suppose they're hearing and reading stuff being revealed about the insides of prisons for the first time, and that's a, a double-edged sword because I suspect there will be publics, you know, people in the public who think, well, you know, you go behind prison for committing such horrendous crimes, you, you face the consequences. And then there will be others who are horrified by what you've just told us and, and shared with the Senate. How were the public reacting in California at the time? Back in the time, they, some of them, like I said, half of them didn't care and half of them did care because now they're facing heavy lawsuits. And, you know, who, who, who pays the lawsuits in California? It's the taxpayers. The ta- they're going to lose a lot of money and there's budgets and money cuts. So some of them didn't care. Some of them did care. But the ones that did care really reached out and they wanted change. They wanted change uh, to the system, how, how, uh, how they treat the incarcerated. What, what happened to you in the end, um, DJ? So you've, you've gone into hiding following your testimony to the Senate. It's created policy changes, et cetera. And for a short time, it seems to have quashed the green wall and its existence, although it's resurfaced even now. What happened to you after you'd given testimony? After I got testimony, like I said, I had to go off the grid hiding for six months. Uh, and it, it was an isolated place, beautiful place. Um, I was up in the high country in the mountains and I had my own little cabin and, and the two kids. So after that, I went into litigation with the Department of Corrections. We were suing the department a couple of weeks before trial. Uh, my father was ill. He was on his deathbed. And I had to come home to Arizona. I live in Arizona, California. I came home and, 
And uh, at the time, I had a girlfriend that told me, hey, your father's not doing well. You need to go see him in the hospital. So I went and saw him in the hospital. And, and he said, son, you know what? I, I'm not going to make it too much longer. But you, me and your mom are proud of you, what you've done. And you know what, son? You need to write a book. Why don't you write a book and share this story with, with everybody? They need to know what happened to you and need to know what happened behind the walls and how these guys treat people. Write this book, son. So that was one of his last words before he passed away. Right? So it encouraged me to write a book. And then shortly after that, my mom passed. And uh, I sat down and I wrote this book. This book is probably the most powerful book in, in California's history or probably in the United States. I took on the largest prison system in the nation, probably in the world. I mean, California Department of Corrections is 30,000 plus officers. I was one officer against 30,000 officers who knew me because I changed policies and procedures. These officers had to go through mandatory training after I testified about the code of silence. You will not adhere to the code of silence. So after that, I testified and, 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 and two weeks before trial, they settled with me and, and, and then I moved on. I, uh, I came home and got married and sat down and wrote the book. It took me about two and a half years to put this thing together. I've never wrote a book, Raphael. This is the first book I've ever written in my last. Everybody who reads this book says, boy, it's powerful. This is a movie. Well, I, mean, I can see this happening. A movie. This is an excellent movie for what you did. You set presidents. It's all about humanitarian, which you did. Things need to change. And, and lately with all this police reform and prison reform happening in the United States and all this defunding of the police and they want change and people are reaching out to me like yourself and I've done podcasts in Australia. I've done the UK, and I'm so glad to come on your show to share my story. It's getting out there, and, and like I said, my book is very rare, and and it's deservedly so. It is a powerful book, but it's also a powerful testimony to your strength for character to to stand up against those thirty thousand officers, the biggest state prison in 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 the United States of America. But do I detect even now, DJ? a sense of something. As I listen to you and as I look at you, there is an emotion coming from you that suggests that this whole experience is still very disturbing for you. It is. It is. I I get that. You, You seem to get very, and I feel the emotion that's coming from you as you reflect on what's gone past. It still has such a powerful effect on you. Why is that? Because they took a job from me that I loved. They took a job from me that I loved, and uh, I wanted to go. I wanted to be an officer till for thirty years, Raphael. That was my goal to retire at thirty years, like everybody else. They cut me short. They retired me at sixteen years. I didn't want to go that way. I wanted to do the right thing, and I did the right thing. And they cut me short. So that that's a heavy burden on my shoulder that I think every day. And uh, losing my father, losing my mom. No, it's just. But what you I, did, I, I, and I have PTSD. You know, I have ninety percent PTSD because of this. You know, but what you did is more powerful than serving out your term as a prison officer in an institution that is um, inhumane. You know, what you did was humane. So when you balance the two, 
I know, you know, when, when you lose your career in the way you did, and I can see the emotion in you right now, but what you did was more powerful than what you could have done. You exposed something and you created conversation in the highest corners of California, and it's reverberating around the world as your book rightly deserves to do so. Because without your insight, without your knowledge, people would go on being abused. You know, they may have committed a crime and they may deserve to do the time, but that doesn't mean that you can't rehabilitate those individuals and return them as law-abiding citizens. And I'm sure people on the outside don't want the things that were happening that you witnessed and put a stop to being done in, in their name. So I'm sure you must feel very proud also, DJ, of what you've achieved. I am. I'm very proud of what I did because... This is if if I would did what I did, didn't do, Raphael, it would still be going on. I mean, it would be going on because no officer is going to do this. You know, I have uh, morals and ethics, and I took an oath. I took an oath when I took with the academy uh, to protect and to serve. I didn't take an oath to adhere to the code of silence. And uh, you know, it's it, it's it, change needs to be happening, and reform and change, and, and California Department of Corrections and all over the United States and the prison system and even the world. I mean. People are human. These guys are human. You know, I mean, you're not above the law because you have a badge on your chest or you wear that patch on your chest. These guys were sentenced by the courts. You know, they were sentenced by the courts. And uh, we're there to protect and, and to make sure they, uh, they go home safe or, or they do their time. What does the future hold for you, DJ? What are your plans plotted for in, in the future? Well, you know, I, I, I wrote a screenplay. Uh, I have a partner. Uh, in LA that's been following me for the last five years. He's a good friend of mine. His, his name's Tony Pote. He's a chief editor at KTLA Channel News. He discovered me and we talked and he said, let's get a screenplay together. I love your story. So we, we got a screenplay together and, and we've registered it and copyrighted it. And, and I don't know, we'll just see what happens with it. You know, let's see who wants it and wants to take a look at it and, and go from there. But the, the screenplay is just, uh, when I read it, it gave me chills. It, it, it's just, it's, it's, it, it, I think somebody will, it'll make a great movie, a great story. And I just want to continue to share my story with people who want to listen and actually hear it firsthand from an officer who actually saw this stuff happen. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, I can visualize it myself, you know, the individual that stands up against, you know, the, the worst, you know, when people are trying to hide things that affects other people. The, the, the most powerful thing you can do is to take a stand. And sometimes you have to suffer as a consequence. Um, but, but, but in the long term, what you've achieved and what you're going on to achieve has brought about change and will continue to bring about change long after you're gone, I'm gone, and everybody else who does things like this are gone. So look, I mean, all that's left for me to say, DJ, is thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. But before I let you go... What does the word second chance mean to you? And in whatever context that you, you would use the word second chance? People deserve a second chance, especially those people who are, are sent to prison that are innocent. You know, there's a lot of inmates that I think are in the system throughout the United States and actually the world and the UK and all that have been, have been wrongfully commit, uh, convicted. Give them a second chance. You know, people like we have, we have lawyers out here actually finding out these guys were wrongfully convicted and these guys have done long prison times. That's, that's what second chance means. Give, give them a second chance for life. And what about 
the, the whistleblowing that you did, because I suppose you took that opportunity to to change the system. So you've given the system a second chance, haven't you, to some extent to to correct the things that they do wrong in order to bring about the change that is necessary, both inside and outside of prison. Do you think that's important? Absolutely. They really need to, to really look at the, how uh, rogue prison guards or rogue people treat the, the inmates and, and change has to happen. I mean, it, it took me to come forward as a whistleblower to make change in policies and procedures within the Department of Laws change. But you know what? They really, they really need to stay on top of this. The, the legislation, the, the senators, the upper echelon, they need to stay on top of this, you know, in order to get reform and, and change in the system. Criminal justice reform is, is a huge topic. And if you had the opportunity to write your own legacy, what would it be? Just to move forward and to believe in yourself and uh, just uh, keep moving forward and, and, uh, and do the right thing. And I think the more people that get to hear your story will learn from what you've shared with us. So thank you very much, DJ. I, I can only wish you well in the future. Um, and I hope as many people as possible read your book because it is powerful. And I look forward to seeing that screenplay turned into a, a super movie called The Green Wall. Watch this space. Yeah, Raphael, I really appreciate that. And you know, like I said, Amazon.com in the UK carries the book and, and Amazon here in the United States. But a lot of people in the UK, from what I understand, is reading the book. And, and, and I want to get this. I want to share it with everybody how the prison system is in America. And I think you should, because whether it's in America, whether it's here in the UK, whether it's anywhere else in the world, and I've been to many prisons, I think people need to see the other side of the story, because we often hear stories about prison guards or prisoners, and what the relationship is like, and most people side with the authorities and to for, for right reasons. But occasionally, and in your experience, there are um, some degrading treatment going on and, and, and really bad things. And, and people need to know that so that the changes that are being argued for are substantiated. And I think you've done that. So thanks very much, DJ, for sharing your story. Thanks, Raphael. I look forward to hearing from you soon. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allows you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. Sound was produced by Audio Avalanche. Original music by J-Row Productions. Design work by Studio Minerva. And myself, Raphael Rowe. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.